most humans are making their decisions emotionally and not logically. And so we need to learn to appeal to people's emotions rather than just bombard them with facts. Hey, welcome back to That Vet Life. You know the clients that get under your skin? The ones where simply seeing their name on the consult schedule makes you sweat? Yeah, those ones. And maybe it seems that with the pandemic, clients are becoming angrier and more brazen with their insults. Well, regardless of the cause, angry and frustrating clients aren't going anywhere. So how do we as veterinary professionals approach and diffuse these situations so that we can provide the high quality medicine to our clients and patients? In today's episode, I chat with Dr. Lauren Smith from The Vetitude about how to better understand these clients and what you can do to change the narrative and diffuse these challenging situations. There's a lot to unpack in this episode, so let's jump right in. All right. So Dr. Lauren Smith, welcome back to the podcast. This is super exciting to have you back here. Yeah, I'm excited. It's been a wee while since we chatted on the pod last. A little bit. Interestingly enough, I feel like our last topic that we went over was emotional intelligence, and it ties into what we're talking about today very well. Absolutely. if people want to like go back into the archives, like way, way back when I was still a vet student, they'll be able to find that episode. And I think it'll lead in pretty well today. But Lauren, what are we talking about today? So today we are talking about angry clients and kind of how to deal with them, how to try to prevent them, but also how to deal with them when they do happen. Because, you know, veterinary medicine is a very emotional thing for a lot of people. So you're going to get angry clients sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I know for myself as a basically a vet student who was going out into the world and even as a first year vet, thinking about having an angry client was one of those things that it just made me sweat. (laughs) I didn't like the idea of someone being angry at me, even though I was trying my best. I was afraid of messing up because I was like, what if I actually am wrong? What if their anger, quote unquote, is justified? And like, what do I do in those situations? Mm -hmm. And of course, that gets me to spiral out of control to a degree where I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible human being. I'm a terrible veterinarian. It's like, whoa, (laughs) back up here. If I'm being totally honest, I still get anxiety about, you know, like a lot of times I get anxiety before going into the room and dealing with clients because I'm worried it's going to happen. And that's why you know, I've worked so hard to try to come up with ways to deal with that because it's not something that necessarily comes naturally to me, but it is something that you can learn to control and you can learn to deal with even if it's uncomfortable. And it still Mm -hmm. is uncomfortable for me at times, but, you know, with the more practice you get, the less nerve wracking it gets and the more you get to be able to know that even though it's still going to be uncomfortable to have someone yelling at you, that, you know, you can handle it and that it's probably not your fault. But even if it is your fault, then there are ways to deal with that too. Mm -hmm. It is good to know that there are people who have been in this profession for a while and they still have the same emotions about dealing with frustrated and difficult and angry clients. So it does come down the anxiety knowing that it's like, okay, it still does happen in the future. And there are ways to train yourself essentially to deal with those situations Mm -hmm. and then deal with the post repercussions of what it does on your confidence afterwards. So we're going to go into that a little bit here today. So I think um, let's start by talking a bit about 
the overhead of angry client, I feel like there's a lot of different types of clients that would fit into that category. So in your words, like what are the the main spheres of difficult clients? Yeah. I mean, you have your clients that are your typical, what you think of, you know, the people who are yelling and screaming, the people who are using threats saying, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to leave a terrible review. I'm going to post this all over the internet. I'm going to sue you. Like, you know, those clients who use threats and intimidation and that kind of stuff. I kind of call those my chihuahua clients. Oh my God. I love that. (laughs) And then you have your clients that are kind of just the more clients that are just never satisfied with anything. And they're just always kind of grumpy and like, whatever. Those are like the cat clients, right? They're never satisfied. (laughs) And they just want to be like pissed off for the sake of being pissed off. (laughs) And then I wouldn't say, you know, the other types of difficult clients that I see are not necessarily angry clients, but they can definitely still be difficult to deal with. I have my, what I call my... Well, there's the border collie clients, and those are the clients that are like the Dr. Google enthusiasts, the raw Ah, food enthusiasts, the ones that are like trying to herd you into doing what they want. They come in and they know what they want. They're telling you what to do, those kinds of clients. And those kinds of clients can get angry too. If you tell them something that, you know, goes against their worldview, like, no, raw food is not the savior that you think it is, like, because they're really attached to these ideas. Then you have your your Brussels Griffon clients, which are the super needy clingy clients. (laughs) And they can get really pissy if like you don't return their calls right away. Mm -hmm. You know, if you tell them that they can't, you know, see you because you're not there and they have to see another doctor, you know, those are the ones that take up all of your time. (laughs) They're like the big time (laughs) sucks. And then the fifth type of difficult client that I think of when I think of the types of difference are the, I call them the, the King Charles Cavalier clients because the King Charles's have the quintessential puppy dog eyes that just like, you know, make you feel Mm -hmm. mad no matter what. Right. So these are the clients that kind of use guilt and emotional manipulation to get their way. So those are my five types of difficult clients that I think of when we're dealing with clients that are the most common Mm -hmm. that you'll run into. And, and as you're saying those, I literally could think of specific people in the practice that I work that fit yeah. into those categories. And I, I literally had like heart palpitations on a few of them. Oh, God, like, oh gosh, that person. Right? Ah. <laughs> Which unfortunately, it's it happens even if you're not a veterinarian. There are people in your life that you don't necessarily get along with, but you still have to learn how to deal with them and how to interact with them in a professional manner. So the other thing I think of is the reason I like to relate them to different animals is that like... You can have that chihuahua who's trying to like eat your face off and is like, <laughs> you know, with its toothless <laughs> little mouth. It's just like, ah, right. And you're still like, oh, I love you. You're just scared, right? Like you understand <laughs> that their behavior is like with the animals, you just give them so much leeway. You understand that their behavior is coming from a place of fear and anxiety and stress. And yes, Humans have the ability to think more rationally, but when we get into that really emotional state, which we often are in, a lot of times we lose that ability to think rationally. We get the, what they call the amygdala hijack, where the amygdala, you know, that fight or flight center kind of takes over and you lose that ability to really utilize your neocortex and that higher thinking. And we kind of just do become these irrational animals, right? Yeah. So... (laughs) That's a good way to think about it. 
I'm not saying that you need to put up with it. Like, if you have a dog who's trying to kill you, you can understand why they're trying to kill you and still be like, no, this dog needs to come in basket muzzled and it needs to be sedated. And, you know, you can still set those boundaries around it. And if the client is not willing to do those things with that dog, you can say, well, it's not safe. I'm not going to see this pet. Right. So it's the same thing with the people. Like, you can understand why they're that way. You know, you can be understanding, you can be empathetic towards why they're acting that way and still say, hey, that doesn't mean that I have to put up with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, setting those boundaries. And so let's get into that a little bit more then. So with these different types of difficult clients, I feel it's really good, especially for the vet students and those new grads, because like my initial fear when I was coming out of school was I did something wrong. That's why they're angry. But what's the truth around that? Like, are clients angry because you did something wrong more often than not? More often than not, no. I mean, more often than not, they're angry because they're scared and they're stressed. And it feels more empowering to be angry than it does to feel like medicine, whether it's us, our health or animals health, like there's so little that we can control about it. Even as doctors, there's a so much that we can't control. So when clients come in, they feel so powerless to help their pets. And they're looking to us to do something, right, for their animals that Mm -hmm. they love. So a lot of times it is easier and it, it feels more empowering to be angry than it does to just be understanding of the fact that we can't control everything. Mm hmm So for those new grads and for those vet students, like if you have, if you're dealing with an angry client first, just realize it's probably not anything you've done. Like it's just starting out with that. Chances are it's not something that is related to you immediately. So then once we kind of get over that, we're like, okay, so it's most likely not something that I've done personally. So then how do we move forward? How do we actually approach this angry chihuahua that's snarling and and foaming at the mouth and trying to chew our face off? Well, then you need to figure out, I think, what the problem is. Once you can understand that the problem isn't you, then you need to stop and think, what is the problem? Mm -hmm. And so what's your mindset for going through these processes? So, I mean, part of the problem is, of course, that, like I said, that that feeling of loss of power, that feeling of helplessness. But there's usually something more specific in there. They feel helpless because they can't afford the treatment or they feel helpless because With those um, border collie clients that we were talking about, a lot of times the reason that they're so attached to these things that they read on Dr. Google, their grain-free diets or their, you know, anti-vax data, you know, I'm not going to vaccinate my pet is because they are trying to, they want to feel like they have some control over their pet's health, right? So Mm -hmm. figuring out what that specific problem is, what will help them feel more in control, what will help them feel like what is feeling so out of control for them? so that you can address that. Is it the money? Is it the, you know, the specifics of like being, oh, I don't want to put these chemicals in my dog's body? Is it that they're strapped for time and they've got a lot of other things going on in their life right now? And this is just one more stress that they just can't handle right now. So figuring out Mm -hmm. what it is that is their problem that's going on. And the best way to do that is to listen. I know we like to talk a lot, But, you know, asking questions about what's going on, you know, if they say, no, I don't want to do that, right? If you make a recommendation and they say no, then ask them, you know, do you mind if I ask why not? You know, is there a reason? Is there something that's going on that makes you not want to do this? Ask. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like those kind of phrases, do you have any other phrases that you like to use when you're asking in order 
kind of, I guess, open-ended yeah. questions to get them to respond. Open-ended questions. And I also think asking for permission to ask, right? Not just saying, well, why mm-hmm. don't you want to do that? But asking, do you mind if I ask why you don't want to do that? Or do you mind telling me what the reason is that you are so resistant to this or that you, what your worries or concerns are? So kind of asking for permission to ask them. I think is helpful because then they feel less grilled and less judged and less on the spot. Hmm. That's a good, really good way to put it on. Mm-hmm. Cause then you're actually, you're pulling into that empathy and that emotional intelligence side as a practitioner to say, I'm not just here to like spout things at you or to make you feel bad about your decisions, but I literally want to be on your team with figuring out how we can best help fluffy. So I really like the way that you put that with like asking a question. So once you have figured out what's potentially driving this client to act this way or to say the things that they are, what's the next step that we should be doing? The next step after that is to address that specific problem. So it doesn't really help to just give client. No one likes to be lectured. So just giving a rote lecture on, you know, if they decline the heartworm preventative, just giving them a, a rote lecture on why it's important to be on heartworm preventative and the horrors of heartworm prevention is not really going to be your best bet. You want to address the issue that they have. So if you found out the issue is that they don't want to put those quote unquote chemicals in their dog's body, then you can address the fact that, you know, when your dog is on heart guard, that is a very low dose of the medication and it only stays in their system for 48 hours. It's not in there for the full month, you know, so it's not like we're putting your dog on constant chemicals, right? Like you can address that. Or if it's the money, you can address the fact that, you know, I understand that finances are a little tight right now. Maybe you can come back for a tech appointment next month to spread it out. But it's really important that we get them on this, you know, and we get the heartworm test done and we get them on it. Because if we don't, you could be looking at a way bigger bill down the line because, you know, treating heartworm is going to cost you thousands, right? Like, so you can address that specific issue that is pertinent to them and, kind of work to assuage their fears and their concerns. Mm -hmm. And do you find that clients, like in that initial conversation, they'll switch from being angry to suddenly being pliant? Or do most cases need like more time? Like, I guess, like, what is our time frame that we're looking at? It varies from client to client. I think there are always going to be some clients who just want to be angry no matter what. They're just grumpy people that are mad at the world. But I think that if you can... Usually, if you're getting through to them, you're going to know it right away because you're breaking them out of that kind of that amygdala hijack that we mentioned before and getting them into that place where they can think more rationally. So they may not be happy, but I think you will see if you're getting through to them, you know, a break in that actual anger, you know, Mm -hmm. pretty readily. Okay. And then so once we've, so we've identified what their problem is, we've tried to actually approach it from that angle. What do we need to be doing as practitioners before we even like open that door? Like maybe the tech has come out and they're like, so they decline prevention, they blah, 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 blah. And obviously we can feel the tension rising in our own body. What do we need to do before we even touch that door handle to go into the room? I think, and this is probably one of the hardest parts. One, we need to recognize that we are having those emotions and those feelings. And maybe we need to adjust our expectations a little bit, right? Like, what are we going in that room to do? Are we going in that room to strong arm the client into doing what we think is best for their pet? Or are we going into that room to work with that client to figure out what is best for that 
whole family, right? Mm-hmm. Because the pet is a part of a family. And so, you know, if we approach it more, if we can get into that mind frame where we're going in there to help that family and to work with that client as a team, then, you know, maybe we can adjust our expectations a little bit. And maybe in the end, you know, we don't convince them to go on the heartworm preventative. Well, as long as you've done your proper job of educating them and you've let them make that educated decision, then maybe that is what is best for that family at that time. I mean, it mm-hmm. it may not be specifically what's best for that pet in your opinion, but sometimes you just need to understand that your goals and your priorities for the pet may not be that client's. And so mm-hmm. we need to kind of work with them to figure out what their goals and priorities are. Mm-hmm. And like realizing it's not about yeah. winning every single time you go in there by because by no means. a lot of times if if you go in there with that mentality that if they don't do what I'm going to say or if I don't get them to do this, they're going to feel like you are not necessarily that you are not someone that they can trust or you're not someone that they can have a good relationship with. But if you can be more understanding and sometimes learn to let things go over time, you can build that relationship. And I think that that might be better for the pet in the long term. Like maybe you don't get them on the heartworm preventative, but if you have established a relationship with this client that they feel comfortable coming to you, then in the long run, maybe when something else does go wrong with that pet, they're going to feel comfortable coming to you because they know that they're not going to be judged and they're mm-hmm. going to be more likely to get the pet the care it needs further down the line rather than going to Dr. Google or wherever it is or just <laughs> or Facebook, you know, letting the pet just ignoring the pet's problem because they're worried about coming in and being judged by you. And what do you think about using the phrase like I know I've had a couple conversations where like we didn't leave the conversation doing what I thought was best for the pet, but I like to end those those conversations specifically by saying, well, thank you for being willing to have the conversation because I feel that it, it adds a little bit more empathy to it to say, you know what, I see that we're disagreeing on this topic, but that's kind of okay yeah. today just because I want to build that level of trust with you. Yeah, I think that that's great. And saying, you know, thank you for having this conversation. If you do have more questions about it, please feel free. You know, I'm happy to talk more if you have questions about what we discussed today you know, leave that door open. At a client not that long ago, you know, I've been very diligent about all of my consults, finding out what the pet is eating and making sure that they're not on, um, you know, a grain-free or a boutique or an exotic diet that might be putting them at risk for DCM, right? So I had a a client come in and their bulldog was on a grain-free diet. And I, I brought it up. I said, you know, I don't know if you know this, but we've been seeing an increase in, and he's like, he stopped me before I even get the words out. And he's like, I don't want to hear about the grain-free diet thing. And I was like, okay, (laughs) I just want to make sure that you're aware, right? And then suddenly he wanted to talk about it, right? (laughs) Like suddenly he had all of these, these questions and all of these things. And I don't know that if he went home and I don't know if he ended up going home and changing the diet, but we were able to have an actual conversation because you know, he'd been told that before by one of the other vets there. And he's like, I don't want to hear it anymore. Right. But then suddenly when I was like, okay, I don't want to push you into doing something you're not comfortable with. I just want to make sure that Mm -hmm. you're aware of the risks of feeding this diet to your dog. That's all I want to do. Yeah. Then it's up to you to make the choice of what you think is best for your dog. 
And, you know, then he was open to having the conversation after that. But you put it in one of your posts recently. It's like clients don't respond to just facts mm -hmm. and lectures. They respond to it actually having like a human conversation. Yeah. I feel like we forget about doing that as practitioners because we're like, I have 15 to 30 minutes to go into this room, tell them what's right, tell them what's wrong, move on to the next patient. And it can be really easy to get into that cycle instead of stopping and saying, you know what, I'm talking to a pet owner, I'm talking to a basically a family mm -hmm. member in that room and just changing our mindset and changing what our goals and expectations are. I think that we love to think that we are super rational beings that respond to facts and data and figures. But if you look around the world, it's really easy to see these days that that is not the case. And most humans are making their decisions emotionally and not logically. And so we need to learn to appeal to people's emotions rather than just bombard them with facts. And you have to do that tactfully because it's not an easy skill to learn. But like we're talking about here today, you can learn ways to do that so that it becomes a little bit more second nature. And as we were talking about this, I was thinking about what happens in the back half of those conversations. So you go into the room, you talk to the client, you don't necessarily end the conversation with the client doing what you think is best. And then what do we end up doing? We go back out into the treatment area and we badmouth them to our tech. We badmouth them to our assistant being like, so-and-so is just an idiot because they couldn't do this. They couldn't mm -hmm. figure it out. And then the cycle right. continues because the next time we see said client, we're like, ugh, them. Yeah. And so what do we need to be doing as practitioners then before we leave the consult room to prevent that from happening? One, I think we need to find some common ground with the client and realize that even if we don't agree on what the best thing is for their pet, that almost all clients, I mean, almost all clients that come into your exam room care about their pet. I mean, I, I guess I've occasionally seen the thing where like the husband brings in the pet and he's like, has, wants nothing to do with it. But it's like the wife, you know, like every once in a while you get that kind of situation. But generally... 99.999% of the time, people are there because they love their pets and they want to get their pets care and help. And so at the very least, we need to understand that even if we were unable to come to an agreement on what is best for their pet, knowing that they love their pet and they want to do what's best for their pet or what they believe is best for their pet, lets us leave on some sort of common ground. And then also, because then you are able to go out, back out into that mm -hmm. treatment area. And I guess it's also, even if you are kind of frustrated with them, and but just stopping right. that cycle and not bad-mouthing them. Just being like, okay, it is what it is. It's not going to help that client. It's not going to help my relationship with that client for me to go and talk about it to my tech or my assistant or my other colleague. Listen, we... Like, it's just, just don't do the conversation. <laughs> we all need to vent sometimes, but it should be productive venting. Just bad-mouthing clients mm -hmm. or client shaming is not productive. I mean, coming out and being like, oh, I really wish that I had been able to get through to that client is one thing. Or, you know, what mm -hmm. could I have done differently, you know, to get through to that client? And maybe the answer is nothing. Maybe next yeah. time you will have a little bit more of a rapport and they'll a little bit more trust to, and you will be able to do something. But I understand coming out and being frustrated and being annoyed and that's okay. You're allowed to have those emotions, mm -hmm. but if, and when we vent, it needs to be productive and not just about, you know, placing blame on the client or shaming mm -hmm. them for their decisions. Absolutely. And so I think we need to keep ourselves accountable in that sense, so like talking, like it comes down to like clinic culture. 
and kind of reminding yourself and your texts and your assistants that if you hear people having a negative venting session like that, then maybe we need to change the narrative a little Mm -hmm. bit because it's not just going to be impacting that relationship with that client. It's going to be something that is happening all over in your clinic culture then. It's like if you're that willing and that comfortable venting about bad clients or even good clients, what are you doing with your teammates? And I I definitely have, uh, you know, heard that where people are, you know, complaining about the client and I have to step in and be like, yeah, I get that it's frustrating, but, you know, at least they're here or at least they're doing this or, you know, whatever it is, you know, just kind of saying, hey, I get it. I get why you're feeling frustrated, but, you know, we can't be talking about the clients like this because they're here for our help and, you know, they're here because they care about their pet and they're doing what they think is best. Changing the narrative and being a team leader Mm -hmm. in that respect. Now, just before we get on with the show, a quick word from our sponsor, which is the Thrive community from us here at Venex. If you're struggling with managing time, feeling like you're an imposter or burning out, then you need to make a change. The good news is you are not broken. You're not a bad fit for the profession much more likely you are missing some super important foundational skills no one is teaching at university. Skills that you will learn as part of our VETEX community. The Thrive Community is a race-accredited professional skills course where members receive training, toolkits, and one-to-one coaching to develop these skills. So join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better as a Thrive member. To learn more and find out if the class is a good fit for you, Visit vetexinternational.com today. Now back to the show. So I hope you enjoyed part one. Now we're going to get back to part two of that Vet Life podcast. Over to you, Mo. So let's look at the kind of clients that really make us sweat. So the ones that are in the lobby, they've come in. And they are just yelling at the receptionists for something. Maybe it's because they gave them Simperica versus Simperica Trio. I don't know. So they're literally blasting them. All the other clients are listening to this. What are some of the steps that we as the veterinarian can take when we, maybe someone comes back and they're like, hey, so-and-so is like blasting the receptionist right now, or you hear Mm -hmm. it yourself. Like, what do we need to do in those scenarios? So one if this is a one-time thing that this has just happened, I can you know, I think that there are all times where we just have reached the end of our rope and we snap over a ridiculous thing. And so, you know, as long as they're not being like to the point of abusive, like if they're yelling about the situation and not like being personally insulting and it's the first time, I personally think that we should maybe give a little bit of, of grace to the situation and give them a little bit of leeway and just try to de-escalate the situation. So some things that you can do to de-escalate the situation. One, you want to get them out of the waiting room. <laughs> That's not a place to be having that conversation. So, you know, if you step out and say, you know, I hear that there's a problem here. Can we go inside into one of the exam rooms and talk about what's happening? You know, kind of break that up. Two, sometimes you just have to let them listen, right? Like, again, they shouldn't be screaming at your staff in the waiting room. But like when you bring them back or you call them up on the phone, like be like, you know, ask them what their story is. Can you tell me what's going on here? What happened? Right. And just let them get it out. Mm-hmm. 
I hate this, but you'll see a lot where clients are kind of rude and unhappy with your support staff, and then they're great with you. And part of that may be that they don't. Oh, I hate that. It's so frustrating because you're like, why are you? And part of it is that we need to be better about making sure that people know to respect our support staff. But sometimes I also think that it's just they've already gotten their anger out and they're over it right? Because they've already had the chance to vent. Mm -hmm. So if you can be that person that lets them vent and get it out, then that can be helpful to your staff, you know, Mm -hmm. and ask them what the situation is, let them get it out. Most people just want to be heard. Now, again, most of the time when people are screaming like this, they're kind of stuck in that amygdala hijack that we talked about. So getting them out of that is really important in breaking that so that they can start thinking more rationally because at that point there is no rational thought going on in their brains. They're just reacting. So one thing that can be helpful is actually stating their emotions. If you say it in words, that can really break them out. So I see that you're frustrated. I see that you're upset. Like naming that emotion brings a certain level of cognition to it that allows them to kind of help usually break them out of that cycle Again, being empathetic and saying, listen, I totally understand why this is frustrating to you. You can understand why it's frustrating and say that it's not okay to have this behavior, right? So empathy, letting them get it out, kind of naming their emotions to help break them out of those that amygdala hijack. Those are some of the things that can be really helpful to de-escalate the situation. But certainly there are situations where that's not going to happen and these clients are repeatedly screaming and yelling, or they're crossing a red line and being like personally abusive, Mm -hmm. blaming you or blaming the staff for things that are not your fault, saying things that are racist or homophobic or misogynistic or, you know, whatever it is and crossing those lines where you do need to say, okay, we're not going to be able to have a productive high and veterinary Mm -hmm. relationship from here on out. And sometimes Mm -hmm. you do need to let those clients go. And so, you know, coming out, most of you are probably going to be going into associate positions, but definitely when you're looking for jobs, make sure that the management where you're going to be working is a management that is supportive of the staff and is going to be on your side and not going to allow clients to be abusive like that. So, you know, choosing your jobs carefully. Mm Mm-hmm. And having a supportive management is definitely important because there are going to be times Mm -hmm. where you need to set boundaries and you need management to support you in that. And I feel like firing clients is a little bit of a a hot button topic right now because to one degree, I feel like in the veterinary profession, we've we've been seeing such an increased number Mm -hmm. of either angry clients or just angrier Mm -hmm. clients. And so we're in that (laughs) almost um, cancel culture in a way. It's like, just get rid of them. Like, no, instead of saying, okay, like, let's actually figure out if this is a client that we can Mm -hmm. keep if we just have the right conversation with them, or do we need to actually fire them? And again, it really does come down to having a management that is supportive and willing to have those conversations to figure out who do we need to just improve our relationship with and who do we straight out need to I kind of call it the Samajii effect of boundaries, I've been calling it, right? Because I feel like we've been so permissive for so long. It's kind of like when that pet's blood sugar gets too low and then you have this sudden overcompensation and they become hyperglycemic. Well, our boundaries were yes. so low and now we're just overcompensating to the point where, like you said, it's almost like a cancel culture thing where it's just like, nope, everybody gets fired, right? No tolerance for <laughs> anybody. Like, and we've overcompensated. We can't do that. 
my general mm-hmm. rules for that I think we should be following for when to fire a client is, do they cross a red line? And so you need to determine beforehand what those red lines are. For me, the red lines are threatening behavior. Now, if it's just like, oh, I'm going to leave a bad review, right? Like to me, that's not like a super threat. But if it's like, oh, I'm going to blast you all over the internet and start an internet mob, or they're threatening you with violence or threatening you with uh, lawsuits or things like that. So threats, Mm -hmm. like I said, homophobic, misogynistic, transphobic, racist language or actions, and just kind of like personal attacks are things that Mm -hmm. for me are red lines and I think should be red lines for, for anybody. Otherwise, I think the three strikes out and you're out kind of rule is pertinent. So if someone is, you know, behaving badly, but not kind of crossing those red lines, you need to let them know that that behavior is unacceptable. So not necessarily saying you are unacceptable, but definitely make it about the behavior. I understand Mm -hmm. why you're frustrated, but in order for us to help you, you need to treat all the staff with respect. It's not acceptable for you to behave that way to my staff. Right. And Mm -hmm. you tell them once, and if they do it again, let them know, I know we discussed this, but I really need you to be more respectful to the staff, that kind of behavior. We can't tolerate it. If it happens again, we're going to have to let you go as a client. And then third time they've been warned. Now it's time to let them go. And then the last one is just that um, I I call it the pornography rule (laughs) because (laughs) there was that judge who said something about pornography. I don't know how to define it. I just know it when I see it. So it's those clients where everyone, like you see their name on the schedule and you just know that it's going to be a miserable day and everyone in the clinic is just holding their breath, waiting to get it over with. And maybe there's not something specific that they did, but when you find that just seeing their name on the schedule ruins the whole day, like (laughs) life is too short. (laughs) So those are my kind of three rules for firing clients. Crossing a red line, three strikes and you're out, or just the pornography rule. You know it when you see it. Those are great. And honestly, as you said that last one, I was like, oh my gosh, I know exactly who you're talking about. Because <laughs> I feel there's also a little bit of a, a difference when, like, so for me, I'm like a millennial mm-hmm. veterinarian and going into a practice, I know a lot of couple of my friends as well, they go in where we're the new kids on the block. And then you have the senior veterinarians who have their specific mm-hmm. clients and maybe they they have like that doctor only mm-hmm. clients because no other doctor in the practice wants to see them. And even the receptionists like be quake in their boots when they hear that name. But that senior vet will still see right. that client because they're somewhat manageable by them. I feel it's a little bit difficult to have that conversation with that mm-hmm. senior vet to be like, hey, do you see what's right. going on here? Because usually they yeah. don't. They've been seeing this client for 30 mm-hmm. years. They've never had an quote unquote issue with them, but everybody else in the practice does. So, yeah. You may not have to deal with them, but the support staff, uh, you know, as the associate vet, but the support staff does. Now, there were times where I just couldn't get management to fire a client. And I made a red line of, if you're not going to fire them, I can't make you, but I will not see this client. And that Mm -hmm. was just a red line that I had to set for myself and my own boundaries because management would not let them go. But certainly it's better if you can be in a place where management is really more supportive than that. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the, the big things that 
pushes a lot of young vets over the edge is when they come in and they are constantly just berated by that client, and but they don't know if they can draw that red line and say, I won't see them right. anymore. And chances are, if you're getting that much pushback from management saying, no, you're still going to have to see it, maybe you need to consider going to yeah. a different practice, but that's a topic <laughs> yeah. for a different uh, podcast, I feel like. As an associate, you have a lot of power in your hands these days. That's not always the way it's been. It may not always be the way that it is, but right now you are in high demand. And if you are in a position and in a hospital that is not supportive of you, there are 20 other practices probably in spitting distance. Now, I know that's not true for everyone. You may be living in a rural area where there's not another practice for 50 miles. Like there are times where that's just not possible, but the vast majority of you are going to have options if you're in a practice that is is not supportive. And you do not need to worry that it's going to look bad if you don't stay at that practice. You know, the first practice that I was at, I was gone after three months. I was not going to stay there. It was a very toxic practice. And that's okay. No one's going to look badly on you because you were only at a practice for a few months. Mm-hmm. And because of that first practice, you had a lot more experience in knowing exactly what you wanted in your next job. So I learned so much in that job. I learned exactly what I did not want to be in a veterinarian. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that that maybe is what sent you on this trajectory of now being like a mentor for new grads? I don't know if it set me on the trajectory, but I do think that I probably would not be here if I did not have that experience. Hmm. So a little bit of a silver lining to it, I guess. (laughs) Well, I feel we've rather rounded this out pretty well. So we've talked a little bit about like the different types of clients, how we actually like the different steps of moving through having a conversation with them, which we outlined before the episode. But basically, like those are five steps where it's like, figure your own crap out, figuring out what the client's crap is, educating in a way that they they understand and it moves the conversation forward de-escalating the situation, and then also just how do you move on past that? So do you, do you feel like you could fill those five steps out yeah, a little bit and more? and definitely or? if you want uh, a little bit of shameless self-promotion here, but do it, do it. There's a link on my Instagram that will lead you to a PDF that outlines these steps in a little bit more, uh, that fills it out a little bit more and outlines these steps. But yeah, step one is kind of figuring out like I said, figuring your own crap out. Like, are you walking into that conversation with baggage? Are you triggered? Is there something like, what are your emotions walking into that, that conversation that are going to affect how that conversation is going to go? Because if you're walking in already defensive or annoyed, that is going to affect how that conversation proceeds. Step two is figuring out what the client's issue is. What is it that is stopping them from cooperating with you? Is it that they are just having a really crappy day? Is it that they have specific concerns about money, about their pet's health, about that they have misconceptions about what they read on the internet about something? So what is their concern or issue? Step three is addressing that concern or issue and educating them appropriately in a way that is pertinent to them and that will resonate with them. Step four is then, um, you know, de-escalating that situation. So what can you do when you have approached this client and they're still being really, you know, and you've tried to figure out what's going on and they're still angry or annoyed or yelling, like, how can you de-escalate that situation? How can you, you know, bring them down out of that amygdala hijack and kind of 
be able to relate to them on a more logical level. And then when all else fails, you do need to kind of be able to let it go and move on. Because if you don't, then you are going to bring that interaction back into the next conversation. And that starts the whole cycle off again, right? That's you bringing your baggage into the next conversation. Mm-hmm. No one needs that yeah. baggage. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the most important steps is just taking a few seconds before you enter that exam room to really evaluate how you're feeling and what's going on inside you and say, you know, what preconceived notions and what emotions am I taking into this exam room and are they appropriate? That takes Mm -hmm. a lot of work to try to, you know, get to a place where you can really identify and and Mm -hmm. be aware of those emotions. But yeah, takes emotional intelligence. It's really important. Mm hmm. I highly encourage any of the new graduates or even vet students that are out there as you're listening to this and you're like, hey, this is either something new that I haven't come across or you want to know more. By all means, please, please reach out to Lauren go and find her on Instagram, send her a message, go say hi, go find that link where you can find a lot more information on dealing with difficult clients. It'll certainly benefit you as you go out into the profession. And if you need any of that information, all of that will be in the show notes. But Lauren, I want to thank you again so, so much for coming on the show. It is always a blast to have you. We'll have to do this again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So before we go... I guess um, to put you on the hot seat, what would be relating to angry clients, what would be one piece of advice that you'd like to share with soon to be new grads and the new grads that are out there? I think when it comes to relating to angry clients, I want to say it's, it's not Brene. I got it from Brene Brown, but I think she got it from her husband, if I'm not correct. But it's, I don't know if people are always trying their best, but I know that I'm a lot happier and a lot more content when I assume that they are. Like, give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they aren't being their best. But, you know, I think that if we just assume that everyone is just terrible, that's going to just be, we're going to be miserable, right? When we go into the conversation with the assumption that this is a person who's trying their best and maybe falling a little short, we can all relate to that because we've all been that person. And, um, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt. And again, that doesn't mean that you need to let them walk all over you or not set boundaries or not say, hey, this behavior is unacceptable. But most people are just trying to get through their day just like you. I think that's a really good mindset to be in, um, whether in the veterinary profession or or not. So yeah, I invite you guys to take that take that on board and really kind of mull over what it means in your own personal life. But thank you, thank you again, Lauren. This has been super fun. Um, and for everybody else out there, and until ne- next time, I guess I'll see you. Bye. Bye. And that's a wrap on today's episode of That Vet Life Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, before you go, I have a quick request. Now, podcasts and communities, they grow the best and they grow the biggest when the members spread the word. So if you know someone who you think needs to hear this episode, or if you found value in this episode and want to share it, go ahead and share this with your friends. And also, don't forget to head over to vedexinternational.com and enroll in the VEDEX community for free to get access to a bonus version of this show. You'll also get some free swag and many, many other amazing benefits. Also, leaving a review of the show on iTunes would be greatly appreciated because, again, it just helps get the word out. But until next time, y'all, I hope you enjoyed this episode of That Fat Life.